0: Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to The Return a Property and Investment Podcast, sharing insights and information on key topics from real estate technology to sustainability. Feel free to get in touch or follow recent news by connecting on LinkedIn. Anna-Claire Harper. Hi, and welcome to The Return Property and Investment Podcast. I'm Anna, and I'm delighted to be joined by Cedric Bucher, CEO of Hearthstone Investments, the UK's first specialist residential property fund manager, which has assets under management of over 250 million pounds. They're leading the way in the sector, for example, in giving institutional investors access to mainstream family housing and low rise apartment blocks in the UK private rental sector. So welcome to the podcast, Cedric, and thank you for joining me. Thank you, Anna, thanks for having me. So I first came across you when I was researching and planning SPI Capital, which has some similarities to your business model in terms of sector focus and the key value proposition. Talk me through the kind of investors you work with across the Hearthstone Funds and what you actually do for them, the key value proposition.
1: Maybe I'll start with what we do. So we build diversified portfolios of UK residential property. We're operating in the PRS sector, private rented sector. Kind of sweet spot is what we call mainstream homes. So we acquire on behalf of our investors, uh, typically two and three bedroom homes, sometimes flats, sometimes houses. We tend to own, let's say a dozen units per kind of development. Overall we own over 1100 properties now, spread across over 100 sites with over 2000 tenants. I think one way to define what we do is, is to kind of distinguish it from the build-to-rent model, which is more focused on, on buying land, developing land, and building high-rise, presents properties, typically high-end, premium properties, often in the big six cities. That's not our model. Our model is to buy directly from house builders in bulk, as I said, dozens, sometimes more units on each side, and then combine those different properties into a portfolio. And that effectively if I turn into what the proposition from an investor perspective, they get access to a very broadly diverse, regionally diverse portfolio of properties across Scotland, Wales and England and benefit from on one hand the, the rental income and on the other hand from the capital appreciation of those properties. We tend to have at the moment all our funds that we run are ungeared and as a result of that, the investor experience is for a very steady, very returns, a very low volatility, very, very strong risk adjusted returns. The product or the investment is an excellent diversifier for our investors alongside their holdings in equities, fixed income, but also commercial property. So it's a very defensive asset. It's really proven itself this year. I'm not sure we'll talk more about that in terms of its downside protection. Also, kind of from an investor perspective, there's a lot of focus now on um, positive environmental and social impact. That's something we, we can provide as well. Given our focus on newer properties and modern homes, the EPC ratings are significantly above average. 98% of our properties have a B or a C rating. And um, as an institutional tenant, our aim and, and we have a track record of, of, of providing good service to tenants, we are fair landlords in terms of the rent reviews we want our tenants to be happy so they stay longer and pay their rent which means we look after those properties well in terms of the maintenance and the ongoing servicing the majority of our investors are local government pension schemes in the UK and they really are looking for something that looks a bit like a fixed income investment but as you know fixed income is quite volatile these days so it's an alternative asset class and that's the majority of our investors we also have private clients or retail investors some high net worth some mass affluent for a specific open uh, open structure that is permissible being in a pension, for instance, or an ICE as well. So quite a broad range of investors. But the reason why people invest is in the same across uh, the board, it's just the resilient income, steady capital appreciation, diversification.
0: So, and just digging into the type of assets, we've talked previously about the difference between the kind of assets that you, your business focus on and the type that mine does. So ours typically are smaller, sub five million pound built assets, whereas yours are typically sort of larger new build schemes. Can you talk me through a recent deal and explain why you focus on the kind of typically larger new build schemes that you do?
1: Yes. So I think if you look at the individual property, we call them mainstream homes. So the average value of a property in our portfolio is around £230,000. And obviously there's variations between where they are regionally, Southeast, obviously, slightly more expensive than than in other parts of the country. But because it's quite obviously a fiddly job to buy single homes, we're looking to buy bulk. I think the benefits are if we take a new development, they might build 100, 150 units per phase, and we buy a dozen of those. The benefits of that are, firstly, we can go to a house builder as a bulk buyer which makes their life easier. They can, can sell a significant amount of properties in one transaction, saves them sales and the marketing spend compared to selling those individually to on own occupiers. So we tend to, because of that, negotiate and achieve discounts on those new builds, which benefit goes to our investors. Depending on the market conditions, they can be anywhere between 7 and 15%. Are there also efficiencies going forward on an ongoing basis? We typically appoint a tenant manager who looks after the tenants in terms of rent collection, but also maintenance and rent reviews, relets, et cetera. Again, if we have more than one property in one site, it makes their work more efficient. I think the last one would be the valuers. Our properties are valued depending on the portfolio, sometimes monthly, in others quarterly. And again, it's easier to, to value. We have a dozen properties in one site, and sometimes in the bigger funds, we have up to 20. These are easier to value uh, because they tend to move in the same direction compared to having individual uh, properties up and down the country. Maybe a recent example would be an acquisition we made in February. So we approached, we we had three, four million to deploy. We approached a house builder, conversations with them before Christmas and completed around February time for uh, about uh, 13 units. So it can go very quickly. We are cash buyer, so that's quite attractive. We don't have to get any finance in place, so we could execute that very quickly. Uh, the specific challenge with that one, obviously, was then to, uh, to find tenants, because we, we've <laughs> we completed 11 of those just before the lockdown, and the last two we were supposed to complete in April. that was slightly delayed. So we had a couple of months where we were not allowed to have any viewings. But once the market reopened towards the end of May, they left very quickly.
0: Fantastic. And you mentioned earlier in relation to the EPCs, the sustainability angle, definitely from an operational perspective, once you've got these kind of properties, they're more energy efficient, but I'm interested in your stance on, and the investors you work with and their stance on sustainability. Cause I've sort of always, I'm always unsure about the extent to which new build properties are actually energy efficient because of the construction cost, the environmental construction costs. What's your kind of perspective on that and your investors' perspective?
1: Well, I think the metric we're using is the ongoing energy consumption, which is significantly better for, for those new properties. So as I said, the average in UK is D, our properties tend to have a B or C rating. So I think there's an argument that all the properties should obviously be upgraded as well. And there is uh, more government support there now to do that. In terms of the build cost, that's a tricky one. At the end of the day, we have an undersupply of housing, so we do need more housing. And either that is achieved through improving existing capacity or buying new property or building new properties. But I think we we are in a country that its population is growing and people need more homes. So I think I've got much choice there. I think what we're looking to do, obviously, working with house builders and and looking to see whether and how these kind of uh, construction standards can be improved to make it energy efficient as possible. It's clearly something our investors uh, care about and there's a strong focus, a specific impact, writing and certificates that are becoming more and more relevant for people, for funds or investment selectors.
0: Mm-hmm. And Just go, digging into the investors then themselves. So, Whereas we would typically work with high net worth individuals, you have this whole range of investors and you mentioned the local authority pension funds earlier. If you had to pick one type of investor from across the range that you work with, what type would it be
1: and why? Well, I think the main criteria that is really important for us is the long-term perspective So we, whether it's a planet worth, a mass or, or an institutional investor, a property is a liquid asset. It costs money to buy, it costs money to sell, and it appreciates over time. So I think no one in the type of business we run should have an investment horizon that is less than five years. Ideally, it should be more like 10 years. So it really is a private equity type investment in terms of the mentality. And that's the bit that is really important for us. And we're always very, very adamant when we're looking I mean, the majority of our funds are 10-year-term closed-ended, so it's always very evident from the fund structure that what we're looking for. We do have an open-ended fund, which at the moment has daily dealing share classes, but even there, we're very clear with new investors that we are not interested in tactical allocations, someone trying to play the housing market. It's just not, that attitude is not suited to the asset class. I think it is important that there is a, an element of, of long-term commitment.
0: So why have daily trading then?
1: Well, that's just the regulation that is in place today no. for that particular structure. So the open-ended property funds in the UK, daily dealing share classes, the investors somehow got used to those, the whole kind of ecosystem around platforms and ISOs and SIP rules somehow got used to daily dealing because that is the norm for equities, funds and fixed income funds. But evidently it doesn't make sense because of that, the regulatory is reviewing whether there could be a better way to do it. So there's an FCA consultation at the moment underway, which is looking to introduce possibly notice periods of 90 to or even 180 days, which is something that in principle we welcome because I think that is more in line with the underlying asset class.
0: Mm-hmm. I guess liquidity is just one of the kind of important themes that's come up this year. I would say this year has been the year where everyone realized cash flow and liquidity were far more important than, <laughs> than anything else in many respects from an investment perspective. So there's been a lot of obviously a lot of challenges this year that you've had to deal with as a business, as everyone has. What are the big challenges that you've had to deal with in 2020 as Hearthstone Investments?
1: Well, I think the, well, the year started reasonably well with Boris funds, but it didn't last (laughs) last very long. So we have uh, obviously the, the lockdown announced towards the end of March, which from a business perspective, meant we had to start working from home very quickly. Luckily, we were all set up to do that, so that was relatively uh, painless. I guess there was three, four kind of specific impacts it had. So, on the the lockdown meant, in the first instance, that value, property values, standing independent values, could no longer go out and value properties, and because the housing market stopped, there was not enough transactions there to accurately value properties. So they all issued what was called a material valuation and sorority clause, which they attached to their valuations, which basically said, we can think the values of your properties are X, but we're not entirely sure. In the closed-ended structure, that didn't really matter too much. In the open-ended structure, that means that open-ended fund can't be priced properly. So someone who wants to redeem or invest might reinvest or redeem at the wrong price. And because of that, all these open-ended funds are suspended. They are dealing. So no one could invest or redeem. For about four months. So that was a novelty for us. We never had to do that before. We had to obviously communicate with all our investors. But to be fair, that went reasonably well. The clause was removed back in July and we were open and we kind of we moved on. But that was just kind of a new experience. Then on the ground, I think construction obviously slowed down significantly. That made it more difficult for us in terms of our deployment and delayed things a little bit. Investors clearly took a breather as well in terms of making any decisions. I think everyone just tried to get their head around this new situation in April and May. So kind of all new investor decisions kind of were put on hold for at least a couple of months. And then practically we've spent a lot of time managing our existing tenants in a way we've never done before. Very direct, very interactive. So we very quickly throughout April got a sense of which of our tenants had financial difficulties through COVID, whether they were losing their jobs, some were self-employed, some were on And we were looking to support them individually uh, through our Outdoors Tenant Management Company, and that worked really well. We got, I think, a good response from our tenants. We helped them through payment plans, sometimes through kind of a reducing rents as well, and really there was no other way to do that. We froze the rent reviews overall, so we didn't increase any rents. Normally, there were really new ones here. We said we put that on freeze for now. And I think our tenants have paid that back to us by paying their rent. The worst month was May, where we had 95% rent collection. But apart from that, it was, and actually some of that was paid back through payments plan. And in July, we had 102% rent collection. So overall, it was about 98% the year. So that really was the first lockdown. I think, and then very quickly, things changed with the market reopening in May, June, and first in England and Scotland and Wales and the stamp duty holiday, and then we kind of very quickly run into a market that went hyperactive, huge transaction volumes, then property prices coming through, and now we're in a situation where we have potentially 4 or 5% house price growth for 2020. But that seems to be quite concentrated at the premium end of the market and doesn't actually reflect all segments of the market that well. Yeah, so it is an ongoing kind of a, (laughs) this is a challenging year. I think there's a lot of different influences. We have started speaking with, See, overseas investors. Most of them are waiting for Brexit now. So we have uh, just had conversations with people in, in Switzerland and the Netherlands. And they're all saying, "Well, let's talk in January." We thought there will be a clear edge with the furlough, which is not being extended for a month, potentially followed by the job support scheme. That's obviously very important for our tenants in terms of being able to pay the debt. Yes, so there's a lot of reactive kind of work happening, and then trying to really reassess all the new information very quickly to make sure we have the right decisions. I think longer term the bit I can't get my head around, probably we don't have to at this stage, but we are amassing a gigantic debt pile, which at some stage will have to be paid back probably by taxes. Well, it will have to be paid back by taxes, whether the taxes will increase through growth or through just increasing tax rates or introducing new tax, we don't know yet. it probably be a combination of both. And that will have all sorts of implications, I guess, on the potential growth of the economy. Mm.
0: Well, that was an excellent summary of all the challenges. <laughs> Thank you. So and the other, I suppose the flip side of it is where you started was quite a positive note with the beginning of the year. And I think this environment is whilst very challenging, at the source of a lot of opportunities. What are the kind of exciting opportunities that you've been able to capitalize on or see coming, whether in terms of the kind of stock that you acquire or investor sentiment?
1: Well, I think that what we've never had in the track record of Hearthstone Investments is we've launched our company in 2011, 2012, and the first fund really had a track record since 2012. So we don't have within our investment performance track record a downturn. And whenever we pitched or presented our product, people say, well, it looks great, but how is it really going to perform? Because you guys were in the round in you know, 8 or not. Oh, we've had a deep crisis. No one wanted a crisis, but we were having one. We're going through one now. So I think through that, we can now demonstrate the features we've always, as said, so the downside protection, for instance, has been very strong at the capital values. Our properties lost a few basis points in terms of valuations in April, and May, and since June, they're going up again. In May, and they'll carry on going up for the rest of the year. You know that from the pipelines. So most sales agreed are higher than the current values, but we can't put that into our valuations on the exchange. But, uh, so you've got really, it's over one year, capital rise are slightly up, which is extraordinary given the year we've had. And rent collection, as I said, on average, will be probably running at 98% for 2020. So that track record is very valuable for us to go out because we can say, well, our product is doing well in a strong market, so we go back to 2014, 15, we had sometimes double digit returns. And now we're coming into 2020 when equity is falling, REITs falling, and our product is just kind of ticking along, chucking out know, one, maybe 2% per year and net off fees. Which is exactly what our investors are looking for, something that is very resilient and crisis proof. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the comparison with commercial property is very helpful as well. At the moment. A lot of, well, not all sectors, some are doing very well, but a lot of commercial property sectors are struggling. And again, that's something which is very important in when we're presenting our offering, when we're comparing residential versus commercial. And now we really have a proof point that there is a significant difference between the two assets.
0: So, if you were starting again at Hearthstone, is there anything you would do differently in terms of the investors you work with, or structuring, or deals? Well,
1: the company was set up before I joined. So, I think it in was investment strategy and the structuring. I think that I'm very happy with really. There was no need to change anything. I think what I should have done earlier, and we're doing that now, is just to be a bit broader in terms of how we're promoting our proposition to a broader range of investors. I think we've done very well with local government pension schemes in the UK and to a degree in the kind of the intermediary wealth market. But I think there's a big market out there that we really can approach now more broadly, including overseas investors in North America, continental Europe, who they really are, they fully understand the PRS model that is much more established in some of those markets, and the investors kind of understand it. And particularly now, as we hopefully getting through Brexit and getting some clarity on where it lands and how it lands, I think some of that uncertainty will go. And then we can focus back on the long-term kind of dynamics for this segment, uh, which in the UK has got a lot of catching up to do, which is great of uh, investment from abroad. But with the income story as well, I think the Brazilian income we've seen this year can be attractive to other uh, investors such as charities or endowments and corporate pension funds. Yeah.
0: Okay. And finally, is there anything that you wish you'd known about when you started running Hearthstone? Uh, well, a lot, yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Every day. But the sector, the industry, our clients, my team, my shareholders. I think the one thing that is becoming more and more evident is how a large part, I think, of the private wealth management market in the UK is almost obsessed with liquidity in a way that actually is more driven by the industry as opposed to the, the ultimate investor. Most investors are quite happy They're allocating their money for five to ten years, or at least some of it. But some of the industry evolved into a model, which where we have very large players, they're running model portfolios that regular rebalancing, these big players are consolidating, they're becoming large. As a result of that, they're running very kind of efficient operations, which can effectively only accommodate very liquid equities and bonds, kind of in a fairly bog standard proposition. Personally, I don't think that's terribly helpful and hopefully will change over time. If you look into other markets, whether it's France or Germany, there are fund structures out there that allow investment in property with very reduced liquidity. And these formats are very popular. In France, there was even a private equity format launched recently for private retail investors with obviously very limited liquidity as well. I think that is something I, I guess I didn't fully appreciate how detrimental that can be to long term investing.
0: That's
1: really, really interesting. So what would you do about it then? What would you like to do about it? Well, all we can do is just participate in in the full leadership, uh, work with industry associations, the regulator. And most importantly with our investors around just educate and and trying to find ways to to do that and remind people, I guess, what the benefits are of long-term investing and appeal to to common sense. I think that's all we can do at at this stage.
0: Fantastic. Well, if listeners want to find out more about you, Hearthstone and what you do or get in touch, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Well, in terms of our business, our website is hearthstone.car.uk. We've got all our profiles there with uh, email and phone number. And personally, I'm on
0: LinkedIn. I'm quite active on LinkedIn, so people can find me there as well. It's actually how we first connected. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for listening. Bye. Pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Return. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast.